The scripture text for today's uh, worship service is, comes from John chapter 16, verse 16 through 33. John 16, 16 through 33. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while you'll see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while, you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish or joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And no one, will ask, no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures or figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is what we believe, that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you not believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. For yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the precious word of God. Hi, New Hope. It's great to see you all. It's great to worship with those of you who you can't see. A little while and you will see me no longer, Jesus said. And again, a little while and you will see me. These words confused his friends. They had heard him talk about leaving already, but they still hadn't gotten exactly what he was talking about. And so they start asking each other, what is our rabbi talking about? 
And they asked in verse 18, they asked each other, what does he mean by a little while? That's a really good question. We should ask it too. After all, we are all living in that little while. May not realize it. And a little while can be hard sometimes. We know that, right? Sometimes a little while can be really, really hard. Whether it's the little while of this pandemic, or it's the little while of a presidential term, or it's the little while of your medical residency, or your teenage years, or your kids' teenage years, a little while in a fallen world can be at the same time wonderful and so, so hard. So let's try to unpack what Jesus means when he says a little while. And by the way, there is a lot in this passage, so much here, but we're only going to focus on that one question that the disciples asked. What does he mean by a little while? And we're going to focus on it in two parts. The first one is, what, what does this mean for the apostles, and why did it matter for them? What did this mean for the apostles, and why did it matter for them? And then the second part is we're going to ask, what does it mean for the apostles and us? And what is it, why does it matter for the apostles and us? So first of all, what does it mean for those apostles? And then second of all, for them and us. So this is the night that Jesus Christ would be arrested. Shortly after saying these words, he would be bound up and taken away by soldiers. He'd be interrogated by the high priests. And early the next morning, he'd be questioned by the Roman governor. And after that, he would be beaten, further humiliated, and crucified. And all of that is just hours away, and Jesus Christ knows it's all coming. And so on this night, his last night with his disciples, he takes time to prepare them for his departure. And interestingly, he says he's only going to be gone momentarily. And then he'll see them again. Now, most often, Jesus is understood here to be talking about that brief stretch of time between his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's the little while that he's talking about. At least that's what most people identify as the little while that he's talking about. Friday afternoon, his disciples saw him executed. He's buried, he's gone, and then Sunday morning they see him alive again. That's less than 48 hours. That is a very little while, isn't it? Less than 48 hours. We often think three days, but it wasn't really three days. According to the Jewish custom, counting days, they counted it this way. They saw him on Friday. That's when he died. That's the first day. Then he was dead all day Saturday. That's the second day. And then he rose on Sunday. So they counted as dead and risen on the third day. Really just a little over two days, really, if we count it in terms of hours. And it must have felt much longer than that, no? Here's what will happen during that little while that he was away. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, he says to his disciples, but your sorrow will turn to joy. You see, for these 11 
apostles, those three days were filled with sadness. Because after three years with their rabbi, they must have missed him so much. They were the three most memorable, impactful, transformative years of these men's lives. Now he's gone. And not only that, but now their dreams are shattered. Because to them, this man looked like he was the Messiah. They hoped that he was going to overthrow the Romans and free their people. And these 11 guys were going to rule with him. Instead, he was disgraced. Now he's dead. And they're left to pick up the pieces. So this was three days of anguish. But then they'd see him again. And they would marvel and worship and be filled with joy. That's how the other gospel writers describe their reaction. It's that mixture of, of confused wonder and just plain happiness. It's better than a dream. They thought they must have been dreaming. When they saw their Savior again, they saw Jesus face to face. But the weeping had to come first. It's no wonder that Jesus uses this analogy in, in verse 21. Look at how he describes this, this little while of anguish. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You see, you see what Jesus is talking about here? It's temporary sorrow followed by lasting joy. Temporary sorrow followed by lasting joy. And verse 22 is key. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And those words, they just echo what he said in verse 20, the second half of verse 20. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. He's saying the same thing in two slightly different ways, and those words, they're, they're like bookends. And that image of a woman and the anguish of labor is right in between those two bookends, framed by these words. I have been in a delivery room five times and I have zero idea what labor feels like and I have zero interest in knowing what it feels like. I'm clueless and I'm happy to be clueless about that aspect of human life. I've witnessed it and I've rejoiced in the midst of it and part of the reason I was able to rejoice so much because I wasn't experiencing the pain. I think it's odd that Jesus would use this analogy with a room full of guys. <laughs> he knows they're not going to really know what this feels like, but even still, even still, whether you are a parent or not, a mother or not, I should say, he knows that all of us should really get the point here. It's a simple point. Temporary sorrow followed by lasting joy. I asked my wife, what does she make of these words? I asked her, do you remember the anguish of childbirth? She talked to me a little bit about the fact that there was, there's a memory there, but it's, it's vague. And there's, 
There's, there's a memory of the experience without the memory of the intensity. I don't know if that resonates for any of you moms here at home. But, he, but she said, I, I can't recall the intensity, and it feels like it's far away. It's not up close and in my face the way it was when it was happening. And now, she said, I look back on that pain. Not only is it distant, it's purposeful. There was a reason for it, a wonderful reason for it, and that makes it worthwhile. But when the sorrow and the pain is up close and real, time slows down, doesn't it? Any kind of pain or any kind of sadness, it slows down the clock. I found out that the average duration of active labor for first-time moms is a little under eight hours. The quickest labor on record, two minutes. Mary Gorgans, an Australian mom, delivered her first baby in two minutes. I'm, I'm wondering if under the right conditions, two minutes can actually feel like eight hours, depending on how intense those two minutes are, because we've all had the experience, those memories of painful experiences that felt like they would never end. Maybe you've, you've been working out and a coach or someone is just telling you, all you have to do is hold that plank for another 30 seconds, or all you have to do is push harder for another five seconds. And you say, is it 30 seconds left? Says, no, you still got 29 left. Is it, is it 30? No, now you've got 28. Stop asking. It feels like it lasts forever. I once, we once lost our five-year-old son in the woods on a camping trip. And less than five minutes felt like eternity until we found him. And we lost him again in a hotel a couple of years later. The same thing. Those three days without Jesus would have likely been the longest that those men had ever experienced until the reality of chapter 20, verse 19. Look, look with me at chapter 20, verse 19 of the Gospel of John. It says there, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked. This is after Jesus had died. He is, at this point, as far as the apostles know, he's still dead. They've heard news that maybe he had resurrected, Mary Magdalene had told them that, but they weren't so sure what to make of that. That sounded crazy. And so they're locked in a room. They're still mourning. They're fearful for their lives. That's why they had locked the door. For fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Interestingly, it's very similar to the last things he says to them on this night. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad, John writes. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, which strikes me as an extreme understatement. What happened? Sorrow turned to joy. All the sorrow turned to joy. And, and perhaps in that moment they realized this, and if they didn't, eventually they did, in order for them to experience that joy, there had to be the season of sadness. He had to die in order to resurrect. You can't get resurrection without death. And with death comes the weeping and the lamenting. So Jesus' friend, Mary Magdalene, she had already seen him alive. She was ahead of the game. 
Earlier that day, she was weeping in the garden outside of Jesus' empty tomb. She was trying to make sense of everything that was going on when she heard the voice of Jesus behind her say, Mary, Mary. And in verse 16 of John 20, he says, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I've not yet ascended to the Father. And, and her instinct, of course, was to hold on to him, was to touch him. Is this real? It's too good to be true. You left once. I'm not going to let you leave again, Lord. Maybe these are the things that she was thinking. But whatever she was thinking, the reality is this. Temporary sorrow was followed by lasting joy. The fact that Christ is talking about his death here in John 16 is very clear. He says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And when he's talking about the world here in the same way that he talked about the world back in chapter 15, verse 18, when he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He's talking about the world in, in the sense of, of those that despise Jesus. Way back in chapter 7, verse 7, he's talking about that world when he says, it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Jesus, like the Spirit would do when he came, Jesus convicted the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. So who likes that? Who likes to be told about their sin, told that they're unrighteous? Who likes to be reminded about the reality of judgment? So plenty wanted him dead. And because he's dead, he's silenced. And if you hate him and you don't want to hear what he has to say to you, then that's a win. If he's dead, I don't need to think about what he says at all. And the ruler of this world would also rejoice at Christ's death. It's a term that Jesus uses to talk about the devil himself, Satan, ruler of this world. He rejoiced when Jesus died because it was an apparent win for him too, wasn't it? But there's irony all over this. Because what looked like victory for the evil one was his utter defeat. What looked like defeat for the righteous one was victory. I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, how did he forgive us? If, if you are a follower of Christ, how have your sins been forgiven? Chapter, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, listen, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, utter defeat, by triumphing over them in him that is in Christ. 
So why is temporary sorrow followed by lasting joy? Well, it's because when Jesus was nailed to that cross, the record of debt that stood against us, with all its legal demands, was nailed to that cross too. His death means forgiveness and canceled debt and eternal life for all his disciples, not just those 11, but all who, as Jesus says, would believe in him through the word of these disciples. That includes you if you've believed the gospel and have entrusted your life to Christ. Wrapped up in the tragedy and the horror of the crucifixion is the victory of salvation. The enemies of Christ, they celebrated the former. They liked the horror and the tragedy. They had no idea that it would lead to the latter, the victory of salvation. When he rose from the grave, he proved that his death wasn't victory for Satan and evil after all. No, the cross marked their defeat. Friends, if, if Jesus is dead, you don't need to be bothered with what he said about sin, repentance, faith, or anything else. You can study it. Maybe you'll find some of it helpful. You don't need to. If he is dead, you don't need to worry at all about the fact that you have sinned and you are guilty before God. But if he died and rose again, then everything he said matters. You have a record of debt incurred because of your sin. And God's law requires that you pay. That you pay up. But if you believe in him and trust what he accomplished, what he did when he died to pay sin's debt, then your debt will be canceled. His temporary sorrow will lead to your lasting joy. His little while of sorrow will lead to your eternal blessedness and peace. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says that Jesus, it describes Jesus this way, for the joy that was set before him, he, does anyone know this? He endured the cross. Why did he endure the cross? It was for the joy set before him. What joy? Whose joy? Well, of course it was his joy, wasn't it? Because after he got off that cross and after he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He was exalted above all else. He was exalted to the place that he deserves to be and only he deserves to be. There's joy in that for Jesus. But I don't believe that it was just that joy set before him for which he endured the cross. It was your joy. I believe it was my joy that was also set before him as he hung on that cross, despising the shame. So that now he can be seated at the right hand of God and as sure as he is resurrected and existing and living in perfect joy, I and you, if you've trusted in him, have the promise of the resurrection and, the ex and, and your existence in perfect joy. If you won't believe in Jesus, this is a sad reality, but it, it, I mean, it's such an understatement. This is, if you won't believe in Jesus, then all the happiness that you can get on your own in this world is as good as it will get for you ever. 
That means that if your life on this earth is nothing but happy all the time, still the best you can hope for is temporary joy here, followed by lasting sorrow eternally. But none of our lives are completely happy here. And so more likely, if you will not believe in Jesus, more likely you will experience temporary joy and sorrow here, followed by deeper, lasting sorrow in eternity. Or, or you can stake everything on Christ. And then whatever sadness and whatever pain you experience in your life here, is as bad as it will ever get for you. Lasting joy is set before you. And that really leads us to the second part here. What does all this mean and why does it matter for the apostles and for us? Christ was preparing his friends, his, excuse me, Christ was preparing his friends, say that three times, he was preparing his friends for those three days without him when he would be in the tomb. But he was preparing them for more than that. He was preparing them and he was preparing us for life, all of life. When Jesus speaks of leaving for a little while here, he's not just thinking about those few hours in the tomb. He, he's got a longer little while in mind as well. And we can see that if we pay attention to what he's talking about here. If you look all the way back in chapter 14, now, remember, this is all from chapter 13 through 17. It's him in the room with these disciples on the night before he dies. So chapter 14 may feel like it was a while ago. It was several weeks ago that we looked at it, but it was really just moments ago in this conversation. He says in chapter 14 that when he leaves to return to the Father, the Father will send a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will do for his disciples what Jesus did for them while he was with them. And then again, in, in chapter 16, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I, do not, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him, the Spirit, to you. When would that happen? It didn't happen while Jesus was away in that tomb. It happened when he ascended to the Father. It happened after the resurrection that he go and the Spirit come. In chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples that when he leaves, they will experience severe persecution. They will be kicked out of the synagogues that is considered outsiders culturally, ethnically, religiously, cultures to, I mean, traitors to their people. And then in, in, he says in that same chapter in verse 2, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. They did experience that. But when did they experience it? It wasn't while Jesus was in the tomb. No, they experienced it after he had risen and they saw him again and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's seated now. You see, through, through this whole night, from chapter 13 on, Jesus is preparing them for that little while that he would be away in the tomb, but he's preparing them for a much bigger little while too. He's talking about not just going to the cross to return to the Father in that sense. He's talking about returning to the Father in the other sense, in the long-term sense. So that when he says, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me, 
not just talking about three days. He's talking about that span of time that began when Acts 1 tells us he was lifted up out of their sight. And it lasts through almost 2,000 years later to today when the church continues to wait for him to return. Because he's promised to return to judge all of humanity and to finalize the salvation of his people and make all things new. So between that day, 2,000 years ago, when they saw him lifted up out of their sight until the day he returns in power and majesty, that, all of it, according to Jesus, is a little while. It's a little while. We are living in that little while. Of course, Peter tells us that to, to our God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. I think maybe Jesus has that perspective here when he says a little while. And Jesus wants us to know that this little while will be marked by lament and weeping, not just joy. So often when this passage is taught, and I confirmed this this week because I was listening to different people teach it. And I received wonderful teaching on this passage. But I have to say, the focus is usually on the joy that we can have right now. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you can live with joy that, verse 22, no one will take from you. And that is absolute truth. The apostles lived with that joy, and so did all of Jesus' earliest followers, even though they were persecuted and kicked out of the synagogues and many of them were killed. But they also lived with that harassment. They lived with the hurt that Jesus talked about in chapter 15. Do you think some of that harassment and persecution brought some sorrow into their lives? Do you think maybe they wept? Do you think maybe they lamented as they saw their family members murdered publicly for their faith? Or as they themselves were stripped of property and dignity in the name of Jesus? Was it all joy? Was it, was it just happiness? These words can be deeply comforting to us. To me, they are deeply. I, I'll confession. I struggle with the commands to rejoice. In Philippians, for instance, Paul just keeps going at it. Rejoice. And again, I said rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord again and again. And I love what I'm reading. And at the same time, I struggle so much with it. And the reason I struggle with it, and maybe you do too, is that you think that rejoicing means the absence of sorrow. So the call to rejoice is to put away sorrow. Get that word out of your vocabulary. Lament, weeping, no, no place for that. Rejoice. See, that call to rejoice can be so oversimplified. Like we should just be happy. Just walking around, clapping. Clapping our hands if we think that happiness is the truth. But no. No, I appreciate the okay that Jesus is giving us here to be sorrowful. I appreciate the okay to feel sorrow and admit it. I think Christians could use this sometimes. We need to be reminded to rejoice. I think we also need to be reminded that it's okay to be sorrowful. In fact, it's natural. It's God. It is Christ-like to experience deep sorrow of the heart. Jesus was the most joyful man who ever lived but he's also the man who cried and raged at Lazarus' grave. 
He wept over Jerusalem and their, their lostness and their sin and their obstinate unwillingness to come to him. He cried in the garden. Just a few moments after this, Don't picture Jesus always happy, as if to say he was always smiling. And certainly don't picture him as a stoic, like he was just unemotional. He just went around telling off Pharisees and flipping tables like some action hero. No, do you think he wasn't filled with sorrow as he rebuked religious leaders who refused to find grace in him? Do you think he wasn't grieved to see how they were treating his people? You think it didn't pain him to see people destroying themselves in their sin and destroying others in their sin? If it pains us to see the sinful effects, I mean, the destructive effects of sin, how much more would it have pained him? I don't think we've, we've come close to experiencing the sorrow that Jesus experienced. We live in a broken world. What have you seen? Just think about what you've seen this week that led you to be sorrowful. Maybe you didn't see it. Maybe it's things that you saw and experienced up close. Maybe it's just things that you read about, about babies being murdered. At all ages, some of them not even getting a chance to, to breathe a breath in this world. I read about an 18-year-old uh, child one of many recently killed in a housing complex called Cabrini Green in Chicago. He's just one of many. Maybe you know of people being abused in silence, children being raised in abusive homes, being hurt and scarred so that they will grow up and, and do the same thing to someone else. Our leaders lie and they mock morality and they mock justice and, and even simple civility. And they teach a nation to do the same. Maybe some of those are things that grieve you and bring you sorrow. What makes you grieve? I don't need much to make me sorrowful, frankly. Sometimes I just wake up sad. And I don't even know why. Depression, as you, maybe some of you know, just make you sorrowful. And then the reality of knowing that others, like you, struggle with that same kind of depression. That's another reason to grieve right there. This week, uh, I, I saw evidences of the kind of disunity that exists within Christ's church in our nation. As I saw respected leaders in the church level awful accusations at one another, mock each other question each other's integrity baselessly. It's not enough to just disagree. They attack each other. And, and, and it brought me grief. And then I thought, how much more must it grieve the heart of the Savior, who in just a chapter is going to be praying for the unity of the church and then going to die for the unity of the church? Jesus sees and he experienced sorrow. He knows it. Isaiah 53.3 says that he is the man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. It's part of what makes him the, the perfect lamb and the perfect high priest. 
So, so when Jesus talks about the pain of childbirth in this passage, he's not like me talking about it. No, he knows. He knows. And, and, and when he says, you will weep and lament too until I return, he knows what he's talking about. You will have sorrow, and yet, verse 22, no one will take your joy from you. So it's, it's not alternating back and forth necessarily between joy and sorrow. There are seasons where the joy is stronger, seasons where the sorrow is so much stronger. But I think what Jesus is describing here is sorrow and joy to varying degrees coexisting right now. But he says, no one can take the joy away from you. In verse 33, he talks about leaving his peace. No one can take that peace either. What does this mean? I think Romans 8 gives us a little bit of insight there. Because in Romans 8, Paul's talking about what is it that can, what is it that can separate us from God? And the conclusion he arrives at is nothing can separate us from God. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Do you think some of those things might bring sorrow into your life? All of those things brought a lot of sorrow into Paul's life. All of that is worth lamenting and weeping over. But then he goes on, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But then he shifts gears. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure nothing in all, he lists many things, I'm just shortening it to nothing, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Paul is saying you can be hurt, but you cannot be crushed if you are in Christ. And even that hurt, it's just for a little while. You can lose your job, your health, your freedom, all the people you love, but no one can take away your lasting joy because no one can take away Christ. And your joy is in him. For you, Christian, for you to be stripped of this lasting joy, you need to be stripped of Christ. And that's not going to happen. We have to ask ourselves, where is our joy rooted? Because if it's rooted in our success, if it's rooted in our skills or our looks or someone else, in the place we live, in the house we live in, in our future, our future plans, if that's where all of our joy is rooted, it's all short-lived. All those things can be taken away today. Many of us are sorrowful right now. Many of us are in a season of pain. We buried a sister yesterday. And her family was weeping and lamenting. And at the same time, we were able to sing. Our sister Janine, through weeping and tears and through deeper sorrow than any of us is probably experiencing right now, was able to sing songs of praise to God and lead a room of people in doing that. Why? Because of this lasting joy that comes with the promise of the resurrection. We live right now, we are living in what some people have called the, the already and the not yet. Jesus has already been raised from the dead, but we haven't yet. 
We have his spiritual presence with us now. But he hasn't returned yet to finish his mission and make all things new. And so we're living in that in-between, that little while. We have eternal joy, yes. But that eternal joy is mixed with sorrow, and sometimes it feels like it's overwhelmed with sorrow. But only for a little while. Only for a little while. And this little while, God has purpose for us in all of it. All of it. 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction, this little while, New Hope, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see what he's saying there? Not only is this just for a little while, this little while is purposeful. This little while is accomplishing something. By God's grace, he's doing something in us and for us through our suffering that's unseen. We don't see it, but we will see it. In the same way that the woman in labor can't see that baby until she can. And when she sees the baby, it's not news of the baby. It's not just, tell, oh, yeah, there was a baby. It's seeing the baby. The joy now overcomes sorrow. And so it is with us. We will one day see face-to-face all that God has planned for us and all that God was accomplishing for us through these sorrows. And when we see it, sorrow will turn to joy. There are preachers, there are prosperity preachers who tell us to expect all of that right now. Nothing but joy. The kingdom's here, they say, which is true. But Jesus also says you're still in the world and you will have tribulation. But hold tight. Hold tight, he says. I have overcome the world. And so will you. We need to get that straight or else we will walk through this life. We will feel, we'll either feel entitled to unmixed joy right now and wonder why God isn't giving us all the joy we want? Or we're going to feel bad about not being more joyful. We're going to feel guilty about our sadness, as if sadness in and of itself were sin. Have you felt that? It's one thing depression does you. Depression makes you feel bad for being depressed. So on top of the sadness, now you've got some shame on top of that. No. Jesus wants us to fight for joy now and trust in the promise of lasting joy that begins now, but know that it will only be perfected then. We weep and lament for a little while. And even as we weep and lament now, God laments and weeps with us. I think Jesus maybe insinuates that a bit here. I I won't go on record saying it's definitely true, but I think it does because he says in this passage that he says later on tonight, you, my friends, you're going to scatter, and I'm going to be alone. But I'm not going to be alone because the Father's going to be with me. In that moment of sorrow when he's left all alone, he says, the Father's with me. And I think that's a clue as to how we will manage under the sorrow that we're experiencing. We're not alone in it. Not just the promise. It's the presence of God by his Spirit with us now. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. Hold tight. I have overcome the world. This is the last thing that Jesus says to them. 
before he goes to die. All he has to do after, after he finishes that, he prays for them. And then he walks out to face sorrow and to face death. But he leaves us with those words. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be honest about our sorrow and help us to be diligently fighting for joy and not trying to find it in anything else other than you and in the, the, the ways that you have called us to find it. Help us to find joy in the certainty of the resurrection and all that it means for us, Lord. Walk with us through our sorrow and keep pointing us ahead. Help us to hold tight and remind us it's just a little while. Amen.